Okay, friends, welcome to our uh, beginnings and endings class. We'll pray. Then I asked you to be thinking about Kairos moments from Sunday. Uh, typically, uh, those could be from what I said or what I didn't say. <laughs> um, it could pr provoke that. So we'll start there, and then I've got, I mean, I really have plenty to talk about, and I'd rather hear what God is stirring or provoking in you to direct our time so that we can um, really dial into what we need to dial in. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Let's just be silent and still. God, as the day passes away and the night comes on, we pray that your light would shine upon us. Illuminate our hearts and minds so that we may be stirred to faithfulness. Lord, may this conversation not just be a curiosity, but may it be bear fruit in your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. Um, well, friends, we talked a little bit about Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3 this past Sunday. And we talked a little bit about how this ancient story was an origin story for the people of Israel, and it was written in a specific time, in a specific manner, in a specific place, and how it made use of other ancient Near East stories. and sort of uh, assumed what's known as the basic cosmology or the base. this is the way the universe works from surrounding culture. And then using those givens, uh, re God revealed himself within that. So God enculturated himself and used cultural norms and givens. And so we talked about how God was distinct from the ancient Near Eastern gods and how uh, people are different. Uh, than what ancient Near Easterners thought people were for. So I asked you to come ready to discuss sort of what, what grabbed you, what questions or convictions, confusion or clarity came uh, for you from that. So um, let's, let's begin our time by just sharing that. Um, as you're ready, unmute yourself. If you're not speaking, go ahead and mute yourself in case there's children or cats or car alarms going off. Um, and we'll see where we need to dig into tonight. So who would love to share first? I can go. Great, Ben. Um, I think for me, one of the, one of the takeaways for me um, was a point of, like, I guess, clarity, if I was going to put it into one of the, uh, a point of clarity um, around, uh, I think uh, I, I used to feel like the, or I, I used to think that the creation story was kind of this, like, God uh, tiptoeing through the tulips and kind of creating this pristine world out of nothing. Uh, but I, I think it's been, um, I don't know. It's been helpful for me to think 
think of it more as God sort of uh, taking charge of uh, ordering this chaos that was that was there. Mm. You know, so kind of that. Um, and I think I think the reason that's uh, brought clarity for me is it feels to me more like God. I don't know. It feels like God is love comes home a little bit more to me because he's not just sort of, it, it isn't like on a Thursday, he was just like, eh, I think I'll create the heavens and the earth. And like, eh, you know, like I'm just going to try this out, you know, see how it goes. But it's more like, no, he's, he's fighting for this space where he wants to be with his creation. Like right from the very beginning, he's fighting for something, mm. you know, he's like pushing back the darkness and all that kind of stuff. So I found that really compelling on Sunday. Cool, man. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing, Ben. Ben, I think that's that's interesting. I've never thought about that. God is was from the very beginning fighting for space or fighting for the relationship with us. Is that would it would it go to that extent? I mean that he had all of us and I thought he was fighting for the place for us creating. I, I think of it, yeah. I mean, I had always thought of it more as, you know, he was just having a great time at creating, you know, <laughs> I didn't think of it as fighting. So that's a whole new concept for me. I mean, I look at creation and I think, wow, God must've had fun making that or choosing that or whatever. And so, so I'd like to hear more about the, the idea of fighting uh, of that energy, that kind of energy versus a, the creative energy that I've always thought of it as. Mm, yeah. And there, there could be a combo between the two. And we may talk about that in weeks to come. So it's good, good to flag that. Oh, no, that's, that's like you guys. You guys just say that. You say, well, we're going to talk about that later. And, <laughs> yeah, put it on. So you don't want to answer a question. You just say, oh, yeah, we're going to talk about that sometime. And down there. <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> I can kind of talk about I can I can talk about that, I, I think. Um, um there's there's this interesting story tucked away in places like second peter and revelation and a few other spots about angels rebelling right i saw satan fall like lightning jesus says at one point and there is uh, there's something about creating everything, including angels, including the heavenly beings, sometimes referred to as the Elo Elohim, right? And then, uh, and then there's at some point, like the angels rebel, but we don't know exactly in the story when that happens, right? I mean, Christian tradition says it happens before Genesis 3 because we have this unnamed serpent that we've come to identify with, with Satan. So there, there, and then we see this conflict metaphor all through Scripture, this cosmic battle that God is waging. I mean, and we see it in stark relief in places like the showdown with Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, we, we see it in uh, the Gospel of Mark, 
right? Where Jesus is just casting out demons and healing people and, and demons are saying, uh, what, do you, what do you want with us, Jesus, son of God? We know who you are. We know what you come to do. And then there's this cosmic battle motif that Paul picks up. So um, I think there's an evocative image of God fighting to, to have a beachhead of his presence and power in the midst of creation. And I, I think some people say it happens between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis, right? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, you know, tons of time passes, right? The angels fall. There's all this stuff. Because why is, you know, why is there darkness over the face of the deep? And, right? So there's, there's this image of like, oh, like something's, like he created something, but now something's dark and there's desolation and God needs to bring order to something that's chaotic and you know like why is it that way and that's one of about three compelling interpretations ben, in my mind like so that's maybe something to say here too I, I think this is worth naming up front i had i had somebody message me in our church and they said hey i have a really hard time with this i think i'm in a different place than most people are in our church like i'm not asking any questions about this stuff like, um, I've just always been told X, Y, and Z. And the people who have told me that are really godly people. And so now you guys are coming along, fancy schmancy MDivs and Bible commentaries, and you're telling me something different. Like, what gives? And I, and I shared two things with them, and maybe it's, this is worth saying this right now, Nancy, in the context of your question. The first is, uh, Ben and I aren't presuming or asserting that we have all the answers about creation and revelation. So our posture in this isn't, I know you've heard blah, 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 but we're going to tell you the real deal. That's not what's happening. Uh, So we we aren't seeking certitude. In the midst of these texts, we're seeking worship. We're seeking loving God and loving neighbor, which is what scripture's for. Okay, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is um, just with the answer that, you know, uh, what about all these godly people who are literal seven day creationists? And we don't, I don't think that's how things happen or have to happen. And I just say, God, God accommodates all the time to my misunderstandings about who he is and works in the midst of it, right? I mean, and I don't say that just based upon experience. I say that based upon scripture where God accommodates to polygamy, eating meat, Israel having a king, divorce. I mean, I can go on and on and on, right? God's accommodating all along the way. And Jesus even tells us God accommodates. So I think God's, Part of the incarnation, part of God becoming human, is he condescends and inhabits where people are. He doesn't stand in this abstract ideal realm and only meet people in, like, the the perfect. He's always meeting people in the real, the reality. And so I just just assume that he will be accommodating to me and my misunderstandings until until glory. And so he's doing the same thing for these people that think differently than us. 
He's meeting them where they're at, in their understandings, in their frames. So, so there may be a theme of fighting. That's a thing, a slant that Ben has. Uh, but if he's wrong, you know. Yeah. So I would just like to say my question about it was that it was very compelling to me. Um, and your answers, your response, Matt, was, I mean, that makes so much sense. And I, so I would agree that what Ben said is, yeah, that's probably this, it's both of it because it, there's definitely the creation and that goes all through scripture too, how God is still creating yes. and recreating. And yet there is this, this fight. And I think that's, I think what you guys are doing in allowing, uh, giving space for questioning what we've always believed, you know, it's kind of like I ask when I teach, I say, well, why do we do what we do? You know, that's the question. And we, we have to, we have to think about it, even if we don't come up with the answer. Um, that we at least have to have to wrestle with it and um, and it's okay to do that. And so you guys are saying, well, I think what you guys are saying is, hey, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to, to um, figure out uh, that maybe there's a different way of looking at it than we always thought, we, thought there was. So I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm thankful that you're giving us a safe place to do that. Thanks, Nancy. That's great. That's great. Hi, Olivia. Good to see you. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Good night. Yeah, I'm not going to bed. <laughs> uh, any other, any other characters you want to name? I've got a few things up my sleeve. Two. I got a little video I want to show you. Ooh. All right, well, how about this? How about as you're pondering and considering that, I'm going to try to do something I haven't done before on our time together. I'm going to screen share and show a short video. Now, I found this video yesterday. So I would have been tempted to show it on Sunday because it basically says everything that I said in my sermon uh, with a few actually extra things that I probably would have said had I thought of them. <laughs> but I think it's a really good uh, summary of the work I think is important for us to kind of get here at the beginning. So let me share my screen. Let's do this. Can you all see that? All right, now I'm going to hit play and you tell me if you can hear it. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear it, okay? All right, I'm going to go full screen on us. Ancient people believed that chaos was the primeval state of the universe. Much like a big pile of Lego bricks scattered across your living room, the building blocks for creation were in place, but they remained unformed until some deity came along and imposed order. In ancient writings, chaos was often symbolized by the raging sea, and we can find that imagery in the very first verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. When you start to recognize chaos imagery, it casts new light on familiar Bible stories. Think of the story of Noah's Ark. 
where God turns the world into a raging sea. This judgment wasn't simply a big flood. It was God allowing the watery forces of chaos to overwhelm the earth. Going forward in the Old Testament, we come to the story of the Exodus. The climax of the Hebrews' escape involves Moses dividing a sea into two halves. This miracle points back to Genesis and creates a parallel between the creation of the world and the birth of the new nation of Israel. Chaos imagery is even present in the Gospels. When Jesus walked on the stormy waters of the Sea of Galilee, he was showing his power over the forces of chaos. As we can see, chaos imagery is present in both Testaments. But the sea wasn't the only symbol used for chaos. Primordial chaos was often personified in the form of sea monsters. One such monster is the Babylonian goddess Tiamat. In the Babylonian version of creation, Tiamat fights with the god Marduk. After a detailed battle, Marduk kills Tiamat and cuts her body in two. He then uses the divided pieces to form the heavens and the earth. Something very similar happens in Genesis. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. These waters are apparently the deep mentioned in Genesis 1-2. The Hebrew word translated deep is tehom, which some scholars argue is closely akin to Babylonian Tiamat. This isn't the only place foreign sea monsters show up in the Bible in a creation context. Psalm 74 describes God creating the world, but in the middle of the description, we find this. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. This passage has God destroying sea monsters by dividing the chaotic waters. In this case, scholars know the imagery comes from the literature of ancient Ugarit, where the god Baal battles Yam, who is portrayed as a chaotic, churning sea and a terrifying sea dragon named Tanun or Litanu. These terms are equivalent to the Hebrew words in the psalm. You divided the sea, Yam, by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters, Taninim, on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan, Liuyatan. So what in the world is going on here? God didn't really fight literal sea monsters at the beginning of creation. The Bible's authors are purposely taking competing religious views and turning them around. The writers want everyone to know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, defeated chaos, not Marduk or Baal or any other deity. Yahweh is the one who sets order to the universe and holds chaos at bay. 
Ultimately, it is Yahweh who will create a new world without chaos. Look how Revelation describes eternity. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This verse is not depicting a world without large bodies of water. The message is that chaos and all that opposes God will be defeated once and for all. For more information on these topics and many others, visit drmsh.com or thedivinecouncil.com. Pretty cool, huh? I think his website name is pretty cool. Thedivinecouncil.com. I'm not sure what that is. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, uh, so a few, a few comments I have about this. That accommodation rant I went on about eight minutes ago, Nancy. Like, um, I think in our heads, we think, okay, did a literal Leviathan exist? Like, is the Bible teaching that Leviathan is real? What's wrong with that question? If I, if I were to ask, is the Bible teaching that Leviathan is real? What's, what do you notice about what that question is doing? Anything? I feel like uh, there's a lot of presuppositions probably about what real is. Um, like post-enlightenment, you know. Yeah, say more about that, Isaiah. Um, well, just, uh, I mean, the, na the nature of reality, I, th I think you've touched on this before, but just like uh, pre-enlightenment, pre there were a lot of uh, sort of things that could be considered truth. Um, and uh, post-enlightenment, it's been empirical, verifiable, repeatable, uh, historical, uh, stuff that's been considered real or truth. Um, so I, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that question, but, uh, you know, is the Bible teaching of Leviathan is real? But uh, I think usually the context in which it's asked is like, you know, is the Bible teaching a historical, literal sea monster called the Leviathan, you know, that has the exact attributes that can be ascribed to him in the Bible. And yes. that's just not the frame of reference that the writers or readers of that passage probably would have had. Yes. Um, yeah. Good. So you, good. Y'all, y'all follow that? Isaiah taught it really, really well. So when we say real, we have a frame through which we assess if something is real or not. And our frame, the, the post-enlightenment frame, is one of the frames we use, uh, isn't shared by these ancient peoples, these Semitic peoples. So for them, Leviathan was real in the sense that this was the way that people understood the world. Death, the sea. It's the way people made meaning of their existence. Right? And so this is why it goes back to what we're talking about. Nancy, rather than God deconstructing the ancient 
worldview and teaching quantum mechanics, evolution, relativity, etc. God accommodates and inhabits this ancient cosmology. Right? And he uses the stuff of it to reveal himself. Now, this isn't, um, th th this causes so much confusion, which is why I'm like hammering at home. Um, people, we miss this when we interpret scripture, but this is how we listen to scripture faithfully rather than subjecting scripture to our peculiar frames. Yeah. Go ahead, dude. Uh, so I have a couple thoughts. Let's hear so, it. Yeah. Um, maybe Kairos is, I don't know when you say that. So the first is that like, I agree with you, like in a lot of ways, like a hundred percent, like, uh, I was a, I, my, one of my majors in college was like ancient Greek. Um, and uh, I was a really poor student, so don't ask me. To That's do anything. not true. Um, but I, I'm definitely not a Greek scholar. But, like, you read the histories, like, the earliest histories, right? And it's, like, full of stories that are, this is history, not, like, myth, right? Histories of, like, a ship going down and a guy is giving a speech on the ship and everyone goes down and everyone dies on the ship. And you're like, well, wait, wait, how do we hear about this? Like, how do we know this speech exists? This is history, right? But it's just, like, the Greeks are like, oh, this is history. And, like, you know, they know it didn't happen like that, but, you know, it wasn't a big deal, right? Um... So, like, their conception of what was historical is just very different, right? But um, I think moving on, like, the struggle for me uh, that's even been highlighted by, like, my studies of, like, ancient texts a little bit, you know, my piddling around a little bit, is that sometimes it gets discouraging because uh, it feels like... Uh, the amount of study I have to do in order to understand scripture is like, is, is uh, like, you, you know, you taste just a little bit of it and then you're like, oh man, this is terrible. <laughs> um, and, and it's hard for me to understand how to balance that with the belief in like the illumination of scripture with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the fact that, oh yeah, like, you know, the past, past 500 years of, uh, or 600 years of people have been reading, you know, uh, Galatians wrong because Martin Luther misattributed the wrong rabbis, you know, to like, you know, stuff like that. I'm just like, I don't, you know, uh, it's just discouraging and I don't, uh, or not discouraging, but like, I don't know how to rectify like the belief in the illumination of scripture and like that scripture is understandable or that the gospel, maybe not scripture, but the gospel is understandable Yes. Uh, with like also like tremendous amount of like real stuff. I know we get wrong. And some of it I know has to do with like the grace and the, that, you know, you talked about earlier, but I don't know, for me, that's what comes up with a lot of this stuff. Yes. I don't think they can relate to that. Like, do I have to be an ancient Ugaritic scholar to actually read Genesis one through three or 11 or whatever? Yeah. I'm resisting the urge, and this will, um, Nancy's already registered her complaints on this. I'm resisting the urge of just giving a quick answer to that. Because I think that uh, the pain of that and the pain inherent in that question is important, Isaiah. I do want to just point out there's a frame 
that you're using to, to register that question, that is part of the problem. Pray speak more. <laughs> so, so for instance, I feel the same way. Like I'm discovering things every day and I'm like, oh, well, probably shouldn't have preached that sermon four years ago. Or, you know what I mean? Or like, oh, wow, I didn't realize X, Y, and Z. Um, and I think there's, there is a conceptual world where understanding scripture equals being able to explain. But that's not the biblical frame for understanding scripture. Over and over again. Scripture tells us the purpose of Scripture is to love. Is to know, is to know uh, God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. And in fact, Jesus deconstructs this in John 5. He says, you search these scriptures because you think you'll get life if you just wring out every single truth in them. But you refuse to come to me. And they point to me. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So they could be filled with all the fullness of God. Right? So there's this surpassing of knowledge, love, that scripture is all about. So that's my, that's my uh, quick answer, Isaiah. I think I feel your pain, and I think it's a legitimate do you want to come sit close to me? I'm busy off screen. Okay. I guess. Sharon's just going to sit. I might have to hop up in. I think there's like a legitimate. I think it's a legitimately uh, healthy impulse to like. I really do want to understand this. But if we think the goal or the end is like my noetic sort of comprehension, we're missing the full intent of what Scripture's for. You know. And I think that there's plenty of examples uh, that Jesus even uses in the Gospels of people who have no way of comprehending the stuff we're talking about, who live faithfully. So that the post-enlightenment frame that you, that you talked about as being unhelpful, I think it frames that question and then also creates the cognitive dissonance we feel. That's my quick deconstruction of your question. Is that helpful or just annoying? No, no. I mean, I, I, I'm with you like uh, 65%. Um, <laughs> uh, no, no, I mean, like legitimately like 65%, which is like, you know, a good percentage. It's passing grade, right? Um, but, uh, it, but also just like, I'm a post-enlightenment man. Like, can't escape that. I hear it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great Kairos, man. I share, I share similar Kairos. Um, here's a few Kairoses I had, if you want to hear them. Uh, one is, I've always been taught to creation ex nihilo. I throw, I'm throwing around, is that Latin? I think it's Latin. I'm throwing around Latin, like I know what I'm doing. Um, ex nihilo means from nothing. Oh, but that's not the sermon I preached on Sunday. 
right? I preach that God created from something. Because I think that Genesis 1, 1 through 3 actually indicates that. So one of the things I've had to, I'm doing like real time is like, okay, other places, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, uh, maybe Hebrews, talks about how all things were created through him and by him and, not, and nothing that is created has been made uh, apart from him. So there's other places where we're taught that like God's cre- God, God is a creative, has created everything that is. But I no longer think, I no longer think the best reading of Genesis 1 through 3 is teaching that. So that was a kairos for me. Some confusion, some grappling, uh, and now hopefully some emerging clarity. Um, I'm also, my other kairos is, this goes back to what Ben and Nancy were talking about earlier. I think that the cosmic conflict theme of God subduing and ordering and defeating the powers and authorities, right? So the Old Testament, it's, it's kind of like configured in Pharaoh and other places. And in the New Testament, there's powers and authorities and principalities, etc. I think that my, my scientific, almost naturalistic worldview is really bad at contending with that. So I, my, my faith or my, my, uh, I mean, I, I, I assent that that's a true thing, but my everyday experience doesn't connect with that. If that makes sense. Right. So I blame colds on germs and I blame a car accident on somebody looking at their phone. Right. So those are two kairoses I had in preparing and preaching this message. So related to that, um, Kairos that I had, because my 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 frame is basically what I uh, lived in Japan, and the Japanese actually, you know, live more in this real world of uh, we're in touch with the spirits. The, the spirits are real, like Jesus. I mean, it's they're they're really more in touch with where Jesus was um, than Americans are um, yeah. in our postmodern state. They're very much pre-modern, very pre-modern in their thinking. Um, and, uh, you know, um, just this, the, they, they also have their own uh, origin story, creation story that is very similar to all the other. Hmm. You were at on Sunday that uh, this little video showed as well. I mean, everybody has their, their creation story, their origin story they all have to do with this chaos and um, hmm. the seas and the monsters and um, fighting. So there's that fighting that Ben was talking about earlier. And, um, but, uh, you know, just sort of thinking about that. And I mean, if you watch anime animation, uh, Japanese anime at all, you know, you'll see that the everyday people are, are interacting with, with the spirits at all times. And so there's not this dualistic, um, uh, view of life that we live in 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 our American postmodern um, mindset. Yeah. That, uh, like you said, we blame our cold on germs, whereas you know in Japan, 
um, yeah, they'll blame it on the spirits. And in Africa, they'll blame it on the spirits. And it's really, um, I mean, I, I think my dad's a doctor. I do think there's germs. But you know, it's just, um, I also believe that there's this spirit world out there that we aren't in touch with and we don't have any idea what's really going on out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I don't know where I was going with that, except that those things were going through my mind. Yeah. Yeah, Nancy. I hear stories about things like, you know, stories about shaman and Haiti and stories about broken bones putting themselves back together in Africa. And I think like, okay, so there's like the, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've heard them too, where, where all rational conceptualizations of the normal laws of nature are being violated here. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and sometimes I feel like the crowd following Jesus in John six, asking for another meal, like wanting, you know, wanting to see signs and wonders. Sometimes that's what it feels like for me. Uh, I feel a little guilty. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I'd love to hear about the 35% that Isaiah is not uh, there. I'd love to hear about the, the interesting part is the 35%. Uh, you don't have to, I'm not, I'm not, I was kind of joking, Isaiah, you don't have to go into it if you want to, but, um, yeah. Wait, do you really want the 35% or no? I mean, I really do. <laughs> okay. No, no, no problem. But I don't, I don't uh, want to like shame you into saying it, so I'm a little, I'm stuck. Um, now I have to remember what it was. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like the thirty five percent of me is like, uh, so I, I um, it just I it, that your reasoning feels a little circular. Um, <laughs> uh, in that, uh, but not necessarily wrong, like circular reasoning isn't always wrong, you know, it's just maybe not like verifiable, which is, you know, post alignment thing. Um, but that, you know, that, uh, we, uh, that the Bible's purpose for itself is to love, you know, that relies on a understanding of the Bible. <laughs> um, you know, so even to get there requires a certain amount of interpretation, right? Sure. Um, and right interpretation. Um, but maybe that's interpretation that can be done, uh, you know, uh, that doesn't need all the cultural baggage and history that comes behind it. That, that, that was my 35%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get that. Yep. But I mean, I think you're right. Right. Like, uh, but I'm also agree with you. Like, I definitely don't think that the Bible teaches that the purpose that it's the purpose of the Bible is to learn the Bible or that, um, through, and, and I specifically don't believe that understanding 
the Bible, as in like the 64, 66 books or however many there, uh, is like necessary to lead the right Christian life because 90% of Christians throughout the ages have been illiterate, right? Um, <laughs> so yeah. that's a pretty bad thing if it, if it was. Um, yeah, so, I, so I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. 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 It's just, uh, you know, it's a hard thing for my, you know, I grew up in a church that was really uh, extremely focused on biblical knowledge. So you, uh, it, it was a dispensational church, not a, not a reformed church, but it had sort of a, um, the singular fundamentalist and almost reformed interest in like a very post enlightenment understanding of scripture. Yes. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So I, so I, you know, uh, and there, and there were some really helpful things about that, uh, you know, because it made me read a lot of scripture. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was good. Um, and then, you know, it's hard to escape that framework sometimes that I just naturally sort of fall into. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So I think a few more things. Um I'd like to share and then any questions or thoughts you guys have and we'll, we'll close it out um one is it's very recent that people are having the self-awareness to name that they are interpreting from a place and a location and a perspective it's a very recent kind of um interpretive understanding. I think for a long time, people presumed, and we still see this today, that the truth is self-evident, <laughs> as our constitution says, right? I mean, I mean, that's a good example, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, except for the people we decide that aren't white men. But there's no like understanding or awareness of that, really. You know, so um, I, th I think that like this this uh, this text that the video referenced and I referenced on Sunday, the Enuma Elish was just rediscovered in 1860. So we've just had it for like 160 years, just kind of beginning. And like these other uh, like the Egyptian creation narratives, the Ultra Hassas, which is from uh, I believe the Assyrians, like there's these other narratives that, uh, that show a lot of the same cosmology, like the world and how it's formed and the substance. Like we're just beginning to realize like, hey, this was like common Eastern, ancient Near Eastern kind of stuff. And we have to learn how to read it. We don't just sort of, we, just, we don't just sort of examine it and, and extract it or read it through our lens, but first we have to look at our lens. You know, like you did, Isaiah. You know, I'm post enlightenment kind of kind of rationalist, and then assess that: is this the best lens to approach an ancient text with? Like that's a new interpretive move, right? That's that level of self awareness is fairly new, and it's fairly unique 
which you're the church you grew up in is evidence of like not everybody's self-aware of that um so all that to say is i think we're just kind of in the history of interpretation we're just at the beginning of, of reckoning with that what does that mean for us uh, how do we how do we navigate that and, and is it going to be you know what, what sort of changes does that make um there's something else i wanted to share too I think as we go, we'll realize that the questions we want the text to answer aren't always the questions the text was intended to answer. So we don't just get our, okay, so this is a crass way to say it. We don't just get our answers from the text. We also get our questions. And the questions are determined not so much by what preoccupies us, but by what preoccupied the culture that the text was written to. And that's something to keep in mind too, because I think a lot of the ways I think about it, a lot of the trouble we get into is when we impose questions on the text and demand it answer those questions, that it's not equipped to answer. Yeah. Uh, and so this is a, this is not only like an interpretive sort of strategy, but it's also a different way of holding faith. It's a different way of, um, it's a different way of living and moving in the world where, where we don't demand our, we, we're not interrogating Jesus at every turn, demanding answers, uh, but we're, we're, uh, we're submitting to him. Right? We see this dynamic in the gospels. There were people who demanded their questions be answered. And Jesus's response sometimes was, man, that's a lousy question. <laughs> you know? So those are two other things I think that uh, right at the beginning here, like we want to reckon with when it comes to this. Um, and so I'll just propose that like the, the questions that most interest me about like Genesis one and through three, like, I'll just be honest. I mean, I'll just kind of like list them. Like, um, how do we how do we make sense of like scientific data and a historical Adam and Eve? And is that a question I need to ask? Right. Like, how do I work out all the theology of Paul and Jesus? as a thought experiment, if Adam wasn't a historical person, if he was an archetype, or if he was human, humanity personified, which I guess is what an archetype is. <laughs> I'm just defining words out loud uh, for your listening pleasure. Sorry. Uh, yeah. And is that, so that's a question that really occupies me. Um, and, and before I go seeking an answer to it, like I want to submit my question and say, is this a question that I need an answer to? Like, is this a question that needs an answer? Because it feels like it does. And I feel like I want scripture to answer it for me. 
but I'm not sure if it's intended to or if it needs to. So that's one of the ways that works out, you guys. If that makes sense. So Matt, um, so as you're talking, um, so like one of the questions that I would generally approach Genesis with, and I think I mentioned it the last time, are like gender roles, um, maybe even like human suffering. Um, but then when you ask like, well, this new Near East interpretation, like what do we do with that now? But I feel like the call is, is like, imagination or compassionate curiosity and maybe putting my like imagining myself wandering through the desert and hearing this creation story and like feeling it in my bones after leaving Egypt you know and like what does that mean for me you know to walk through the Red Sea and like know this creation story about my people or you know, I just, I feel like called into maybe like imagining it differently instead of through my, my day to day. If that makes any sense. I don't know if that's what you're asking us to do, but <laughs> that's yeah, so, like one of the things that came out for me as you were saying, like, what do we do with this? Yes. Now. So here's, here's what I'm aware of, Josie. And you tell me if this impacts what you're saying. I'm aware that the Genesis account has never been used in a way that I thought was oppressive or abusive against me. Like, I don't cringe and roll my eyes when somebody reads it. It doesn't, I don't, I don't have the interior, interior experience of this being used against me. So I'm going to come, I'm going to approach the text in a way that's like, oh, let's see what this says. Maybe a little fear about like, how do I, how do I work out like the thing I talked about? But, but you're coming from a place where people have, you've shared this with us, where people have told you, like, this is where we go to figure out what a woman can and can't do and her place in the world. Oh, look at that. She's supposed to be a helper that submits and doesn't make decisions or think for herself or whatever, like whatever people have told you, right? You know what I mean? And so like, that's to me, like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to say, put that on the shelf. I'm trying to say like, that's your location through which you read this text. So like own it, be aware of it. Um, that's the only way you'll ever be able, I think, to hear something outside of it. I think I think it's important to note too, though, Josie, that what you're what you're talking about doing is is a probably a beneficial exercise, but it's something you can it's something you can only do from your location, right? It would be something. It would be an exercise for you to say you know what, what would this feel like if I were this person, you know, at this time, you know, that kind of thing. And I feel like that work is good work because it allows you then, like you will make connections to your life, you know? So it's not like you're setting it on the side. It's just you're, you have enough self-awareness to say, oh, this is my perspective and my location. 
like, let's see if I can get into the mindset of somebody who would have heard this when it was first written. You know, how would it hit me then? And then what, what, what connections can I make here? You know, to, to, you know, to the stuff that's going on in my life. Yeah. Cause I think, I think Josie, I have conviction that the way that we will preach through and teach this text. And I think the way this text hit ancient Near East people is radically liberating to women. Rat the irony is it's been used to oppress women in some, in some ways, but it's radically liberating. You know, just, just a for instance, like what I'm talking about. And I don't want to steal any Ben's thunder here. But at the end of Genesis 1. Check yourself. All right. You Let's make Adam in our image and our likeness, right? And let them have dominion over everything and uh, over everything that creeps. So God created Adam in his image. In the image of God, he created them, what? Male and female, he created them. Like, do you, do you hear how the text, like, introduced this pair, like, towards the end? Like, it was Adam, which could mean man or human. And then, it, and then there was this plural, and then there was this male and female. And, and to be made as a female to have dominion over the world is an incredibly empowering thing for a woman in the ancient Near East. For female to image God, like, the, uh, like um, kings made images of themselves in the ancient Near East. So what K King Yahweh is doing is making images of himself. And it's not just a man that images him. It's also a female. Like, that's, that's ridiculously empowering. Uh, like, 1700, or 2,700 years ago. <laughs> you know? When women are, like, chattel. And, like, that, you know, I'm not saying that this is, like, an, an enlightened sort of empowerment like empowering egalitarian text. I'm just saying what this text is doing in its time is completely liberating. Uh, I thought of this earlier. I want to mention it. Um, if you guys are interested in one of the, one of the things that really helped me to do that exercise you're talking about, Josie is sort of like, how would this have hit me uh, is read through this book by Sean Gladding called the story of God, the story of us. Uh, and it's basically the, the story of the scriptures. Um, but the old Testament is told as a, like an old man telling the stories of Israel around the fire, uh, in Babylon. So they're in exile in Babylon and he's telling, here's who we are. Uh, and it is, it's really fascinating. And the new Testament is, uh, the setting is a, is a house church, um, that somebody keeps, starts coming to and they start telling, they start telling this person the story of Jesus. It's a really cool, we read it to our kids uh, when they were younger and it's really, really fun. Makes me want to read it again. Yes. <laughs> I don't know, Josie, if that helps, but that's, that's what we want to intend to do here.
All right, friends. Any final comments before we close? Next week, we're going to deal with what? So what is creation about? Why seven days? Why see sky and birds and sea creatures and et cetera? Uh, and so uh, Ben will be talking about that, preaching about that this Sunday, and then he'll be leading this class <clears throat> on Tuesday. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for bringing great questions. We, we tend to have philosophical conversations, which I absolutely love. <laughs> I absolutely love. So it's a lot of fun. Anyway, if you have further thoughts or questions or want to chat more, just ping, uh, just email Ben or I. Be happy to talk with you. And uh, yeah, we'll see you Sunday. Peace, friends. Peace, everybody. Have a good night. Bye-bye.